Likutei Sichais, Chelik Yudzayin, Volume 17, the Sicha for the second Perik, the second chapter of Perkiovis, specifically on Mishnah 13 of Chapter 2. Now just as an introduction, a brief one albeit, the Mishnah in this chapter, beginning with Mishnah 9, describes the five great students of Rabbi Yochanan. And after enumerating their qualities and their differences, the Mishnah then quotes various sayings in the name in, in the, in, by these great rabbis, by these five great students. One of them is the author of this Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon. That's number one. Number two, it's worthwhile to get familiar with the concept, with the term Torasam Umnasam, which literally means that their main craft, so to speak, their main endeavor was Torah. Let me explain. There was some of the sages, of course, all of them were great scholars, and all of them engaged in the study of Torah, literally day and night. However, there were some scholars that were outstanding in the fact that their only endeavor, exclusive, was Torah. Nothing else. As if to say, their only craft, their only profession in life was Torah. They would literally study Torah day and night. There was nothing else in their life. In fact, as we'll see later, more in detail, the Talmud says that for those who were in that category of Torah Samum Nasam, they were actually exempt from praying and even according to some accounts from even reciting the Shema in the morning and the evening. In other words, it was considered that their Torah was on a great le- such a great level, as we'll understand later, that they did not need, they just didn't need, they weren't re- not just that they weren't required, they just didn't need the effect of prayer and of reciting the Shema. That's number two. Another third thing, just as an introduction, we know in the Mishnah there are certain rules. The Mishnah was written in very shorthand, and there are times when one has to really understand the formula or know the protocol of the Mishnah. One example that pertains to our discussion here is that there is a rule, Stam Rab Shimon, Rab Shimon Bayechai, which means that when a Mishnah appears in the name of a Stam, Stam means simple or plain or anonymous, Rabbi Shimon, without specifying which Rabbi Shimon, because there were many Rabbi Shimons, there were many scholars in the Mishnahic and Talmudic era that were named Shimon, Rabbi Shimon that is, but there was Rabbi Shimon Ben, the son of such and such, that was an identifying quality. But in the case where it just appears as a simple Rabbi Shimon, meaning just Rabbi Shimon, typically the rule is that it could be assumed that that is Rabbi Shimon by Yochai, the great Tana, the great Mishnahic scholar, who also is the author of the Zohar. Let's get into it. So the Mishnah says, Mishnah 13 of chapter 2, Rabbi Shimon says, One should be very meticulous in the recital of Kriya Shema, of the Shema, and in prayer. That's number one. Number two, when you do pray, do not allow your prayer to become just a routine act just to act what you're just kind of doing by rote. Rather, it should be something that you do out of compassion and 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 supplication before the Almighty. And he even re, uh, uh, refers to a a um, qualifying verse to back this up. 
And then the third thing he says, Do not consider yourself as a wicked person in your own eyes, in your own estimation. Now, we need to understand, first of all, the first clause of this Mishnah seems to be entirely superfluous. I mean, really, do we really need this encouragement in Pirkei Avot per se? In the ethics of the fathers to, to encourage us to be diligent in the fulfillment of a biblical command? Remember, prayer and Shema are biblical commands. Moreover, that these are not just any biblical command. These are very fundamental commands in the life of a Jew. Number two, in the second clause of the Mishnah, it seems that it's just merely repeating something that already appears in the very first tractate of the Talmud. Over there it says, clearly, in the tractate of Brachot, it says that if Ha'oset Filosekeva, one who makes his tefillah, his prayer routine, or like a fixed act, ain't Filosit Achanunim. His prayer is not a supplication, which is saying that you shouldn't make it a fixed act. So why is it necessary to repeat it here? And then number three, which is perhaps the most astonishing question, what is the connection between these two clauses and the, and, and the idea of not considering oneself in their own estimation as a wicked person, which really means essentially that you shouldn't give up on becoming better. You shouldn't kind of become comfortable and resign to the fact and therefore despair that you're never going to be better. And you should always have, you know, that hope, that yearning to do tshuva. But how does it fit in over here? So the Rebbe begins the explanation as follows. You see, Rabbi Shimon ben Nisano. Remember, as I mentioned, he was one of those five great students of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Shimon ben Nisano was one of those, those unique scholars that they were in the category of Torasam Unasam. Literally, that their Torah was their only engagement in life, their only profession, literally. And they were on the highest level. And he was similar and comparable to Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, the most famous of the sages, who of, of you so to speak, the leader of this pact of this special uh, uh, quality of having Tarasim and Nasim. And therefore, it follows that he himself, this is Rabbi Shimon ben Isano himself, would not interrupt his study of Torah in order to recite Ishma or in order to pray. And therefore, he found it necessary to, 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 to uh, direct his students, to warn them not to take a cue from his lead, not to follow his lead, not to look at him and think that saying Ishma, reciting Ishma and praying is not such an important act, is not something that's important in the life of a Jew, but, you know, and it's very typical, because you think about it, typically students watch and observe and learn that way from their master, from their teacher. So therefore, he had to tell them, make the objective of reciting Shema in prayer, make it something of utmost importance in your life. And that's why he used the word, have zohir. You should be careful, you should be extra diligent in, this, in these two mitzvot. So that answers question number one. To answer question number two, then he turns to his colleagues. Now, when he turns to his colleagues, he's not just turning to any colleagues, but colleagues who are very close to his level. They're also on a very, very high caliber, and they are also in that general category of Torah Samam Nasam, 
that they also would absolutely all the time engage in the study of Torah, albeit not on his level, not on the utmost level. And therefore, they did have the requirement, they did have the obligation from time to time, not as much as you and I have, you know, three times a day to, to pray or twice a day to recite the Shema, but at certain time periods, at certain zones, so to speak, they had to stop their, their study of Torah and engage in recital of Shema and especially in prayer, as described in the Talmud. So what he was saying to them is, do not allow your prayer to become something that you just do as a routine act, as something which you, so to speak, have no choice but to get over with. Now, why would they be doing that that way? But these are holy people. Which holy person? Can you imagine a holy person praying just with the idea of just to get it out of the way and get it over with? Think about it this way. They were so eager to study Torah. That's all they did their whole life. That's all they were engaged with that the, this was their passion, this was their love. So for them to stop their, their study, to interrupt their study, to pray, they had to do it with somewhat with a reluctance. Naturally, it came with a reluctance because they want to go right back to their study of Torah. They want to go right back to their so much enjoy spiritually and mentally. And that's why he said to them, do not allow the prayer, your prayers, those times that you do stop for prayer, do not allow them I do not allow those time periods to just become something that you do as a fixed thing, as a routine thing, but make it that it should be a supplication before Hashem. Now, the truth is that really, indeed, there is a debate whether those who are Torasa umnaso, meaning those who are in this category, even Rabbi Shimon Be'echai on such a high level, whether they do need to, or perhaps they don't need to, interrupt their study of Torah for the recital of Shema. And it really comes out that most did need to stop their learning at those times designated by the Torah in the morning and the evening to recite the Shema. And therefore it comes out that if anything, it was just Rabbi Shimon Ber Yochai. And as the Rebbe will point out, Rabbi Shimon Ben Nisanal, the author of our Mishnah, is comparable to him. Only these two unique sages, unique situations, this, these unique sages, they were the only ones that do, did not have a requirement and therefore did not interrupt the study of Torah to recite Shema. Now the question is, how is that possible? We know that a Jew has to recite Shema, and, and the primary reason for the recital of Shema every day, as the Mishnah itself tells us in Shraktate Brachot, is that a Jew has to, quote, accept himself the yoke of heaven. How then would they get it? Well, the answer lies in the fact that they didn't need to interrupt their studies to recite the Shema. You see, they were already naturally, all the time, in that mode of acceptance of the yoke of, the yoke of heaven. They were always that way. In other words, in order to be able to, to be connected to the Torah on such a high level as they were, and as explained in the Zohar, as explained in the Zohar, that the, the idea of being truly means that one is so connected to Hashem that one becomes an, an example of what the, what, the, what the verse says elsewhere. There's a verse that says, 
Hashem says, quote, I will put my words in your mouth. It's just as if like, almost like Moshe, as if Hashem is speaking through the person. In other words, the person is so subservient to Hashem. The person is so connected to Hashem. The person is so one with Hashem through the Torah that the person is always in a mode of Kabbalah's all of, quote, acceptance of the yoke of heaven. And this actually also is very much hinted in a very interesting point, in a very interesting fact. You see, the Mishnah over here is authored by who? Who is the sage of this Mishnah? Not Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, but Rabbi Shimon ben Nisanel, as obvious from the fact that he was one of the five students of Rabbi Yochanan. And yet, how does the Mishnah present his saying? Rabbi Shimon Stam. Now, of course, you can argue that because it's obvious, and this is still in the continuation, uh, coming on the heels of the previous Mishnahs, therefore it's obvious. But still, the Rebbe says on a deeper level, more satirically, it actually hints to the fact that Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai and Rabbi Shimon ben Esalam were very similar. And it's brought out in the name Shimon. What does the word Shimon mean? It comes from the word Shmiya, from hearing from understanding, from truly comprehending. There was a true essential connection to the Torah. That there was a true understanding. Because like I said, it's as if Hashem is putting His words, His holy words of the Torah, into that person's mouth. Into that person's mind. Because the person was always, these people, that is Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, Rabbi Shimon ben Asanel, were always in a in a in a in a state in a state of subservience to Hashem in the utmost sense, and that's why they had the deepest understanding in the Torah. And now, of course, it makes sense why they were exempt from ever interrupting their Torah study to start to, to recite Kriya Shema, to recite Shema, and to pray, because it 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 there's no need. In other words, there's no need to duplicate the very same thing. You're already in that mode. Why would you now say Kriya Shema or recite Kriya Shema or spray in order to accomplish that which you already have in your hands, so to speak? And that's why these two sages never had to uh, interrupt their study of Torah. Now, let's take a moment to examine this idea of Torah Nasa. In other words, it would seem on the surface that what does it mean when you say Torah Nasa? That it's a quantitative thing. That literally all the time, without fail, they didn't stop studying Torah. So in a quantitative sense, they had so much study of Torah to the, to the greatest extent possible. However, when one looks into the Zohar, when one looks into the deeper meaning of all this, as I mentioned already, and based on that verse which I mentioned, V'asim Hashem says, I'll put my words in your mouth. This explains that this was a qualitative thing. This is not something quantitative. And this helps us understand that the person who is in that state is in such a high level that they don't need to say Shema. They don't need to pray because it's already all done. Now we can understand the third clause in the mission. In other words, after we appreciate that Rabbi Shimon of this Mishnah is Rabbi Shimon ben Asano, but really, he and Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai were one and the same. And they were on the highest level of subservience to Hashem. The highest level of piety. To the extent that they did not have to interrupt their Shema and their prayer. And that's why Rabbi Shimon ben Isanel felt a need, A, to instruct the students not to neglect their prayers. And B, 
to instruct his colleagues who were close by to him on his level, but not absolutely there, that they should not, you know, take for granted the times that they do pray. Now we can understand how we get to the third thing. This is applies more to, so to speak, to the general public. You see, Rabbi Shimon Be'er Yochai, he referred to himself, he said about himself, and this we find in Tractate Sukkah, he said, Yochol ani lifter es kol adim. I could absolve the entire world. Entire world doesn't only mean the righteous, it means even the wicked, even those who have tremendous shortcomings. I can absolve the entire world from judgment. Now, what does this mean? This doesn't mean that I, he didn't say I can bring about that everybody should do tshuva. I can trigger in the hearts of everyone they should do tshuva. That's not what he said. He said, I can absolve them for judgment, which means that even when they, quote, remain in their same, in their state as they are, you know, with all their iniquities, with all their shortcomings, with all their sins, yet the merit of Rabbi Shimon Yechai was so great that it can override any need for judgment. It can tolerate even the sins and protect the entire generation in spite of their shortcomings. Now, you think about it. Typically, when a person is in a very bad state and they're not seeking to do tshuva, which is usually a result of their tremendous arrogance, what happens? God forbid, sometimes Hashem does the person a favor as much as it doesn't sound like a favor, but Hashem does a person a favor and brings hardships and pain on the person. Why? Because that, usually, what that accomplishes is that it crushes the person's ego and allows them to come to tshuva, brings them to the realization that they have to return to Hashem, that they're not, it's not everything about them and they need to change their ways. But in the generation of Rabbi Shem this did not occur. Because remember what we said. When he said, I can absolve the entire world from judgment, what he meant is that there's, a, there's a, such, his merit was so great that there's such a great level of tolerance even for the worst of sins. And therefore, this would never occur. And therefore, Rabbi Shimon, who was comparable to Rabbi Shimon Be'echoi, which it's obvious, it follows that in his generation, the same occurred, namely, that his merit w- was able to affect a tolerance even for the worst of sins, even for those who were in the most terrible state. Therefore, he had to tell them, and this was, by the way, the reason why he had to warn about the, the Shema and about the prayer, why he had to encourage his colleagues. Now he's talking to the rest of the world and he's saying, look, don't get comfortable where you are. It's true that there is no active measures, so to speak, that Hashem is taking to push you to do tshuva, whether from good or, God forbid, sometimes some crushing, you know, a crushing push that brings the person to humility to do tshuva. But you should know that you shouldn't get too comfortable in your state of being, and you should remember that at the end of the day, everybody's got to do tshuva, and everybody will do tshuva, and therefore don't give up, do not, you know, be get, so to speak, comfortable with the idea that I am a Russia, and that's the way, I'm wicked, and that's the way I'm going to remain.